Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. And I have to apologize right up front. As I was flying up here yesterday, I realized I was getting a cold. And uh, so you're getting the stuffy version this morning as my uh, cold got worse during the night. So I apologize. I'm sorry you have to listen to this voice. This is not my normal uh, voice. <clears throat> I wish we had a happier topic uh, today. There's a lot of topics in biblical counseling that I would rather be addressing, uh, but this is uh, very much a need in our, our culture. And I'm going to pray and then I'm going to tell you why I became interested in the topic. And it was of necessity, not because I really wanted to, to study uh, the topic. But uh, let me pray and commit our day to the Lord. I'm very thankful that you're willing to commit this, this time to be here. So join me in prayer. Father, thank you for each man and woman in this room and their commitment to you and your word and to the gospel and to loving people. Uh, Lord, uh, so many names are going through my mind right now, faces are going through my mind as uh, we have ministered to uh, many women uh, in a domestic abuse uh, situation over the last few years. And I know you love them and you care very deeply about the pain and suffering that they have been through and the children have been through. Lord, help us to grow in wisdom. And I thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and that you have not left us without guidance on how your word relates uh, to these horrific situations. In particular, as we think about a woman named Julie today, I pray that you would bless her as I uh, can picture her in my mind right now. And I thank you for how she has grown in grace and knowledge of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, over the last uh, two and a half horrific years uh, in her life. So uh, you know the situations in this room. Uh, Lord, you even know if there are people that are sitting here that have been through these type of situations, and I know you care very deeply uh, for them. Um, Lord, bring comfort to their hearts. So help us to grow in wisdom today, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last uh, few years, especially during the COVID years, uh, have been a steep learning curve for our counseling ministry at First Baptist Church. Let me tell you a little bit about the counseling ministry and then I'll tell you what happened during the COVID years. I'm coming up on finishing my seventh year at First Baptist. Uh, Heath Lambert called me <clears throat> about seven and a half years ago or eight years ago when I was giving a final exam and torturing students at the Masters University. And I saw I had a call on my screen from Heath and I thought okay, he was then the director of ACBC and I thought, okay, Heath's calling. I think I'll step out onto the patio and take the call. And uh, Heath, if you know Heath, he just gets right to it. Uh, he said, uh, Ernie, I need you in Jacksonville. Uh, would you consider moving from Los Angeles to Jacksonville to help me start a biblical counseling ministry at First Baptist Church? And I won't go into all the details of all of that and how the transition took place. But about uh, seven years ago, we started the biblical counseling ministry at First Baptist Church. Uh, we now have, I think we're at 44 counselors or something like that, and we have a caseload typically of 100 to 110 active counseling cases in our counseling centers. So we actually operate a counseling center through the local 
church through First Baptist Church, and it's paid. We don't charge. It's paid for as a ministry of First Baptist Church. During the COVID years, uh, I stopped counting around 25. Uh, we had somewhere around 25 domestic abuse cases at First Baptist in about a two to two and a half year period of time. It was horrible. Uh, they just kept popping out of the woodwork, uh, mostly members of First Baptist Church. Uh, in particular, about two and a half years ago, in a one-month period of time, we had five crisis marriages that I would put somewhere in the category, and I'm going to distinguish this a little bit later, of the difference between what I think of as a crisis marriage where you can do marriage counseling and a crisis marriage where it's not marriage counseling because there's domestic violence uh, involved. And I'll distinguish that a little bit later. But in a one-month period of time, <clears throat> I told our associate pastor, I think the demons have come out. We had five horrific marriages break out, all involving some degree or another of domestic violence, three involving the police, two with guns, and 19 children uh, were involved. Uh, that's the most horrible part of all of this for me. Uh, Julie is a woman I'm going to be telling you about, and I'm going to show you a picture of Julie. She gave me permission uh, to show you her picture of uh, Julie and her four girls, and she's going to be my case study throughout our, uh, as we talk about dealing with domestic uh, violence. <clears throat> and it's still an ongoing case. She's still dealing with the court and ways to protect the children from her husband, who I think of as the Taliban. Um, he has been uh, just an uh, absolutely horrible example of what a man is supposed to be. Um, some of the other cases, uh, not just Julie's, Julie's was one of, the, one of those five cases during that one month period of time when we, it presented as marriage counseling, but then we soon realized there's a lot more going on here than marriage counseling. This was a domestic abuse case. <clears throat> some of the other cases were we had <laughs> a wife trying to beat down the door of the office at the house, and the husband was frantically on the phone uh, with one of our pastors uh, because the wife was yelling through the door, I'm going to kill you, uh, because she had discovered that he had been uh, perpetually using pornography. So she, was, she had a bench and was trying to break down the door to get to her husband in the office. Uh, in another situation, things were being thrown in the home, and uh, a window was actually broken, and that's when the police uh, were called. So we had, I had already begun to study the issue of domestic abuse, and you know it's been talked about in the culture quite a bit, and I thought, okay, this is an area where I need to just get really sharp uh, in this area and think biblically about how do we deal with these, and then chaos broke loose uh, in, our, in our church, and it was just one uh, domestic abuse case after another. The other term that's used, <clears throat> this is not in your notes, but another term that is used more today is intimate partner violence. So if you, you may not even find the terms uh, domestic violence. You may, if you're doing a search on this, you may find the terminology intimate partner violence. So then, of course, when you get into that category of intimate partner violence, uh, that's going to include hom homosexual relationships and intimate partner violence. So they get thrown into these statistics as well. There are about 20,000 calls a day in the United States related to domestic violence of some sort. Just to break that down for you, that's 400 an hour, that's 14 every minute 
uh, in the United States around the clock. So this is not a small uh, issue. On the podcast, as we were recording it yesterday, uh, Ben asked me, so why? You know, you know, what's going on here? Why all of this now with domestic violence? <clears throat> well, it's always been an issue, and you've heard cases of this, but COVID didn't help us at all. And if you think about the human heart, I think about a tea bag, and when you put a tea bag under heat, what comes out? The tea comes out. Well, we, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And our country, our culture was under intense pressure during the COVID years. So a lot of gook came out during the COVID uh, years. Uh, I have uh, in your notes a hymn from Isaac Watts. And I want to tell you why this is significant. My approach is going to be, I have some quotes on the screen from one of my mentors, a man named David Pallison. And <clears throat> David Pallison said this, that our desire in biblical counseling is to be radically biblical. So I'm going to be I'm going to be endeavoring today to be radically biblical. He also said, Biblical counseling rightly has stressed that wisdom lying open on the pages of Scripture is the sole criterion for counseling. And that's going to be my approach, is we want wis I want wisdom from God's Word as I endeavor to figure out why would men do these types of things. It's usually, if you, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's vast majority of domestic violence is men against women, even though we have had a few cases of women uh, against, uh, against men. Now, the culture is typically going to say that these type of men can't change, and uh, that's why I have the Isaac Watts hymn here. Uh, we have seen men change. I could tell you some beautiful stories of men changing from being angry men to being gentle men. Uh, they take on a Christ-like character. Now, the culture would say uh, that's a lie, that can't happen, a controlling, angry man can't change. But if you believe that, you're going to have to deny Ephesians chapter 4 that says that people, because of the power of the gospel, can put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of their mind, and put on the new man. Uh, is that a process? Absolutely. We call that sanctification. And if someone is a true follower of Jesus Christ, they can repent and they can change, and we have seen it happen uh, in our counseling ministry. We're actually in the process, another, not Julie, but another domestic violence case where we separated the husband and wife because he was threatening her with a gun, and we separated them, and that was probably two years ago, and uh, they were apart for over a year, but now we're slowly bringing them back together. And I'm going to mention some resources about how you walk through that process of reunification, how you carefully walk through the process of reunification. <clears throat> I have an old hymnal I bought on eBay, and it's been a blessing to me. It's an Isaac Watts hymnal from 1802, and I've worn it out. So now I'm having to decide, do I want to put the money in it to re get it recovered? And I'm thinking I'm going to because it's worth preserving. But it's a beautiful little leather hymnal from 1802. And it's uh, Isaac Watts hymns. And this was one of the hymns that I found in there. This is the word of truth and love sent to the nations from above. Jehovah here resolves to show what his almighty grace can do. So I'm not going to read it with a British accent. But if you wanted to get the poem, I'd, ha I'd have to do it with a British accent. 
so shoe and do. Uh, this remedy did wisdom find to heal diseases of the mind. This sovereign balm whose virtues can restore the ruined creature man. We believe the gospel can do that. Where Satan reigned in shades of night, the gospel strikes a heavenly light. Our lusts, its wondrous power controls. So one way I like to think of the doctrine of progressive sanctification is that the Lord is taming the lion that's inside of us. So our unruly lusts and desires, what is the Lord doing through the years as we walk with him and we grow in our relationship with the Lord? He's, he's taming the lion. At least that's my story, is the Lord has been taming the lion inside of me. So our lust, its wondrous power controls and calms the rage of angry souls. Lions and beasts of savage name put on the nature of the lamb, while the wide world esteem it strange. Gaze and admire, but hate the change. Uh, so we have seen men change. Now I'm gonna be focusing, not, I'm not gonna even be talking much at all about, and if you wanna talk about this during the question and answer time, feel free about how do you minister to the man. This focus of my presentation is gonna be domestic violence in general, and then a focus on the woman and how to care for the woman in the context of a local church. Now, I'm gonna start with what might be going on in the heart, and I have some reasons for why I'm uh, starting with the heart, and then I'll explain those in a moment. I'm assuming a little bit of knowledge here that if you're familiar with biblical counseling, uh, you're familiar with what we mean by the heart, uh, if not, let me just give you a little background. Uh, the heart in the Bible, so lave in the Old Testament and cardia in the New Testament, whether you look at a Hebrew lexicon or a Greek lexicon, you'll see that the definitions you have in your notes here uh, are the mind, the will, the emotions, affections, desires, appetites, and passions. And you put all those together and you start seeing themes. So we go through a set of heart questions with counselees to try to help them understand what are the patterns that are going on in your decision-making, your will, your affections. Affections, that's a Jonathan Edwards word. He wrote a treatise on religious affections. So affections would be what stirs you on the inside, like your hopes and your loves, and what do you put your trust in? Well, what's this man putting his hope in that he beats his wife or he puts pressure on his wife. And then conversely, what's the woman putting her hope in in that she stays in the house? And that's one of the enigmas in this whole thing with domestic violence is that many women stay in the house and it's underreported. So even though there are 20,000 calls a day, it's uh, estimated that it's way underreported of what's actually going on. And when, once you get involved with domestic violence, you start to understand why, uh, because it just doesn't feel safe. Uh, if he finds out that I told someone, I'm gonna get hurt even worse. And one of the last pages of my outline is a set of protocols that we've trained all of our counselors in to follow uh, when we, it becomes obvious that there's domestic uh, violence and <clears throat> Uh, you'll see that one of those is that we have to be very careful about reporting, and you'll have to check what Michigan laws are, but Florida laws tell us that it is unethical, so this is the terminology that's used, 
in Florida. It's unethical to report domestic violence without what is legally called informed consent. So without the consent of the abused person, you should not call unless it's a 911 call. Someone's life is in danger. So we train our counselors. If it's imminent danger, someone's life is on the line, they're being threatened with a gun, I'm gonna kill you, call 911. Uh, otherwise, we have to be very careful how we walk through this minefield and just put yourself in the place of the police show up on your doorstep and the husband, what are, what, what are they gonna do? They're gonna deny it. Oh no, there's no problem here. I heard, we heard the police come and say, we heard there's a fight here and someone was being hurt. Oh no, 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 everything's fine. Uh, she's afraid. And then she gets hurt even worse, potentially. So I'll talk more about that under protocols. Back to the heart. Uh, the heart is the mind. What's going on in the mind of this man? What's going on in his decision-making? What's going on in his emotions? What's going on in his affections, his lusts and desires? There's a lot of appetites driving him. There are a lot of passions driving him. And we want to help the man understand his heart, what we would call heart motives, or Another term we use in biblical counseling is heart idolatry. You know, what is he serving so much? What is he bowing down to so much that he's willing to hurt his wife to get it? Some of the things that, if that's not familiar to you, there's some, here's some resources I'd recommend for you to catch up on the idea of the heart. Ed Welch wrote a little booklet called Motives, Why Do I Do the Things That I Do? That's from CCEF. We use that little booklet a lot. And then David Pallison, in his wonderful book, Seeing Through New Eyes, has two great chapters right in the center of the book. One is called, I Am Motivated When I Feel Desire. And the second chapter is called, um, drawing out the purposes of the heart, the whys and wherefores of human behavior. And I use those chapters a lot. So if you're not familiar with what we mean by the heart, basically what biblical counseling has done in the last 20 to 30 years is unpack the implications of lave in the Old Testament and cardia in the New Testament. And what do you, uh, what do you see? When you start asking these questions about thinking related to a man, or thinking and will and emotions and desires related to a woman, you, you come up with things like this, desires for approval, desires for pleasure, desires for success. Uh, a main one when it comes to domestic violence is control, desires for control, so being dominant over another person. Now, why am I listing these other things? Because I'm trying to be radically biblical and the culture is fixated on power and control. Uh, the culture is really fixated on power and control. And there's a model that if you start getting into this, a, more, a common model that gets used is called the Duluth model. And the Duluth model has this diagram, which I think is helpful and it uh, can serve some illustrative pur uh, purposes called the power and control wheel. I just don't think it's complete because the men that I've dealt with, it's not just about power and control. It's about appearances also. I have to have my wife appear because I want to be a successful businessman. I have to have my wife appear the way I want her to appear, and I'm gonna put pressure on her to get her to be the way I want her 
to be, and even if I have to be emotional and violent to get her to do it, I'm going to put pressure on her to get her to do what I want her to do. So there is power and control, but there's also things like uh, approval, fear of man, success, and then pleasure loving. Um, the case that I'm going to unpack for you involves, and this is disgusting, uh, but it involves uh, spousal rape. And uh, unfortunately, that's just something you have to get familiar with is what constitutes spousal uh, rape. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. So there's pleasure. I'm going to force myself on my spouse, even if she does not want that, because I want pleasure and I don't care what you think. Well, that's domineering type thinking where you're forcing yourself on someone else. What could be going on in the heart of the wife? So her mind, will, emotions, affections, desires, lusts, and appetites, and passions. Desires for security. Let me put the slide up here. Desire for security. Why won't she leave the house? Well, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to feed the children? Uh, the woman that I'm going to tell you about that I'm calling Julie. That's not her real name, but uh, the woman that I'm going to that I'm calling Julie. Uh, she gave in to sexual demands that she found disgusting. Well, why was it? It was because if I don't do what he wants me to do, he's saying things like, "If you don't do what I want you to do, I am not going to give you money for groceries." And so he's using money to control her, and I'm sorry that this, I'm a biblical counselor, so I deal with a lot of disgusting stuff. So I'm being really blunt with you, but I, I'm trying to help you enter the world of domestic violence right now. <clears throat> so we had to help Julie wrestle through her fear of man and living for approval of her husband. Even up until recently, uh, she had some panic attacks just a few months ago, and our female counselor sent me a picture of her, and she was just all broken out in hives. Her face was swollen and all broken out in hives, and it was like she had a setback. And I asked her what was going on, and it was she had this narrative going on in her mind of this is all my fault. I got myself into this mess. If I would just give in to his demands, I could get out of this. And we had to tell her, no, 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 no. You know, it's like you're going back two years. You know, we've worked really hard over the last two years to get you free from this fear of man uh, thing that's going on in your life. Even the worship of children, and that can sound, yeah, you'd have to be very careful with that. But Julie has realized that her children have been on the throne in her life. Well, how do you know that that's improper? Because, I mean, that's what moms do. Moms protect their children. So how could that become idolatrous? And again, you have to be very careful here. But just think, of, enter her life for a moment. You can think about how this can become improper. I am willing to sin to get protection for my children. So I am willing to let him violate me physically so that my children are protected. So she's willing to be sinned against and allow him to continue in sin so that she gets the groceries for the children. And she had to realize, okay, yes, I love my children, but there's something's out of balance here. There's something wrong here in my inner person that I'm willing to let him do these things so that 
uh, I have uh, protection and can feed the children. Let's talk about what is abuse. I can't go through all the details here. I just want to hit some highlights, and I'd like you to turn to Psalm 146 as we endeavor to think biblically in a radical way. Where do you find these categories? Where You're not going to find in an encyclopedia under A in the Bible abuse. So that's not how you use your Bible. The way we think about it in biblical counseling is how do you think biblically? That's a term we use at Masters University as well, is thinking biblically. So just like I'm not going to find obsessive compulsive disorder in the Bible, I'm not going to find ADHD in the Bible, but I can look at the definitions and say, okay, where are these things in the Bible? And I can learn to think biblically about these categories that the world is observing. So the world may uses terms like intimate vi partner violence or domestic abuse, and scripture is going to use terms like oppression, uh, thinking in terms of like oppression. So I have in the first paragraph there, abuse is defined as specific acts limited to three broad categories, physical and sexual, reviling and corrupting speech, restriction of economic and relational resources. You've already heard all of those categories, haven't you? As I've described the, the case with Julie, I've, that's what's been going on in this category. Victims of abuse experience symptoms from these acts of abuse in a multitude of ways, including emotional, spiritual, and physical distress that can compound over time. Let's think of biblical terms. And I want to urge you to think in terms of biblical terms. Psychological terms can be nebulous. Biblical terms can be really precise. I think the Bible has the best anthropology, and so it describes humans and what's wrong with humans and why do humans do these types of things. So using biblical terms and concepts, including oppress, violate, defile, humiliate, deceive, weaken, scheme, bring low, that's going to be an important one, bringing low another person, self-interest, selfish ambition, and others to replace ambiguous psychological terms. Because then you can see, okay, how does, what does the Bible have to say about how do you deal with oppression? I highlighted the word bring low and also the word uh, humiliate because of the next sentences in that paragraph. Using these biblical terms and concepts better depict the sinful depravity of abuse against the dignity and personal capacities of those created in God's image. Remember, in James chapter 3, we're told to be careful how we even talk about another person or talk to another person. It's that uh, famous or maybe infamous uh, chapter about the tongue that we all violate from time to time, and we're warned about how the tongue uh, can set things on fire. And in that same chapter, uh, James warns us about, you better be careful about how you talk to another human because they are a fellow image bearer. So I think of domestic abuse as I am violating the dignity of another image bearer. So anytime I am uh, bringing somebody else low to my advantage, so I'm using in my notes here self-interest, my selfish desires, and I'm using my power, my desires, to humiliate you or bring you low, 
you're starting to get into the realm of oppression or someone who's dominating uh, other people. And then there's a whole paragraph from a book that I appreciate by a biblical counselor named Chris Moles, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, which I would urge you to read. Let me mention um, another book by a biblical, female biblical counselor named Julie Ganshaw. She has uh, in Saint, no, Kansas City, she has a ministry called Reigning Grace Biblical Counseling. And believe it or not, almost all that she does is domestic abuse cases. I don't know how she does it. Uh, she just deals with domestic abuse cases on a regular basis. That would be emotionally draining to have to deal with them uh, all the time. But that's what the Lord keeps bringing to her. And she wrote a book called A Biblical Counselor's Approach to Marital Abuse. And the subtitle is A Roadmap to Reunification. And that's the book we use to train our counselors when we're trying to bring a couple back together very carefully. And she has four R's of reunification. Uh, it's steps that she follows to very carefully over a a slow process, bring the couple back together. One of the R's stands for repentance. So how do you tell if true repentance has taken place? Uh, we don't want to bring this couple back together until we're certain that the man has truly repented. And there's a lot of biblical thinking in the book about how do you tell true repentance. Now I had you turn to Psalm 146 to show you how relevant Scripture is. Psalm 146 <laughs> I'm going to read the whole thing, mainly because I love it, <laughs> and it's just a beautiful psalm. And uh, this psalm has ministered to my soul many times. <clears throat> In case you don't recognize the translation, I'm using a newer translation, which I lovingly call the, the NAS on steroids. So it's the New American Standard updated. Uh, it's now called the Legacy Standard Bible, uh, translated by some of my colleagues at Master's university and seminary, and it just came out a couple of years ago. So this is the updated New American Standard uh, called the Legacy Standard Bible. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh throughout my life. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in nobles, in merely a son of man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Now, let me just stop and make a couple of comments. The contrast in the psalm is what are you putting your hope in? Don't put your hope in humans who will fail you, like political leaders. The day that they die, all of their plans perish. But opposite of that, put your hope in Yahweh. And that's a big counseling issue for all humans is, I wake up every morning, put my feet on the ground, and I have to ask myself the question, what am I going to love today? What am I going to put my hope in today? And the psalmists are challenged, this psalm in particular is challenging us, don't put your hope in mere human beings, put your hope in Yahweh God, especially political leaders. That's a good reminder as we go into another presidential year. <laughs> we should learn by now that that's not where our hope really is. Now, notice the contrast. So, in contrast now to verses 1 to 4, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. 
Well, why should you put your hope in Yahweh God? Because he made everything. If he can make everything and he can speak it into existence, don't you think he can take care of you? So who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he is faithful. He keeps truth forever. Well, what is the character of this God who's the creator? Our God is so merciful. He loves giving justice to the oppressed. Who does justice for the oppressed? The word oppressed in Hebrew there is the exploited. Uh, it's the weaker party, someone who's being exploited by someone that has more power, that's stronger. So the Lord cares very much for the oppressed. If you know, if you've studied some Hebrew, you know that things intensify throughout the stems of Hebrew. And in the uh, pu'al uh, form, the intensive form, it's the same word for rape. So uh, in the cal form, it's oppressed, exploited. In the pu'al, it is a rape. So it fits the category of domestic abuse uh, well. That's who, that's who the psalmist is, has in mind, is uh, these people who are being exploited. They're a weaker, uh, weaker party. So what does the Lord want to do? He wants to give food to the hungry, and Yahweh sets the prisoner free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind, and then, I love this as well, he raises up those who are bowed down, and I'm thinking of Julie again. Uh, Julie of today is not the Julie of two and a half years ago. She has grown tremendously as her counselor has walked faithfully. They have been through quite the journey uh, together over the last two and a half years, even as recent as just a couple weeks ago, another court uh, hearing. The Lord loves Julie. He cares about those who are bowed down. Uh, he loves the righteous. Yahweh keeps the sojourners. He helps the orphan and the widow, but he bends the way of the wicked. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, from generation to generation. Praise Yah. How has the Lord changed Julie? About two months ago, so there have been repeated restraining orders on this man that I say is like the Taliban, and injunctions have been against him, a lot of restraining orders. He breaks the restraining orders. He doesn't care about the restraining orders. He was ordered by the court to pay expenses and to uh, pay monthly expenses for her and the children. So you know what he did? He quit his job so that he wouldn't have to pay uh, any, any expenses to her. Uh, he had not known where she was living. I'm gonna, in the second session after lunch, I'm gonna unpack more how our church has cared for her over the last two and a half years. He had not known where she was living, but in the last probably five months, he figured it out. And she turned around about two months ago and realized that he was parked right there, right behind her. So she pulled in to the parking lot in her apartment building, and he purposely was trying to intimidate her. So she, he was right there in the car, right behind her. She said years ago, two years ago, I would have panicked. This is what she told me in a text message. This is how the Lord has grown her. But two years ago, I would have panicked. I would have started to have a panic attack. But when I realized that he was there, she thought, oh, good. Now I have more evidence for court. And she turned around with her phone and snapped a picture uh, of him. 
that's a radical difference than the fear of man that would have happened two years ago where she would have been having a panic attack because he pulled into the parking lot. She has grown tremendously in the last two and a half years. She, uh, she said, I just started reciting, reciting truth to myself. Yahweh is my strength and my shield. He is going to protect me right now. I don't need to run from him. In fact, I need to take a picture of him to let him know that I'm not intimidated by him anymore. That is a radically different woman than two and a half years ago. Uh, the next point in the notes is some biblical categories. I've already talked about oppression, diminishing the personhood of another image bearer. And I have a quote there from Dale Johnson, who's the executive director of ACBC. I'm not going to read all of that, but I'll use that as a segue to tell you that there's a document about to come out and we have been working hard on this for the last two years. I was on a committee with ACBC to write domestic abuse documents. And it's about a eight-page affirmations and denial statement of what we believe about domestic abuse, but what we don't believe about domestic abuse. So affirmations and denials. And we pretty much go through every major theological category and how do we think about how does the sovereignty of God relate to domestic abuse? How does uh, the gospel and uh, soteriology relate to domestic abuse? So we go right through our theology thinking about affirmations and denials. And then we have about an eight-page protocols document for our counselors of here's how to deal with domestic abuse cases. A website is being created to house that, and it's going to be released uh, any day. So pretty soon you'll be able to get on the, it's biblicalcounseling.com and there will be a very extensive document related to domestic violence that's going to be released any day now. Um, number two, authority and position is being used in, in um, oh, this is how we should think about authority and position. So a man who is not abusing his authority is using his authority in Christ-like ways. He is a servant. Now, I have that like back-to-back -back with complementarianism, because this is a huge issue in our culture. Our culture, and I, I would assume that in a room with this many people, that uh, we probably have some that come from a complementarian background, and we probably have some that come from an egalitarian background when it comes to men and women's roles. But we're being told in our culture that traditional husband and wife roles, complementarianism, where uh, we would view Ephesians chapter 5 where the man is to be the spiritual leader of his home, we would, uh, we would get pointed at. So I'm complementarian. I would get pointed at. I have been pointed at and said, well, that's the problem. It's complementarianism is the problem. And I would push back on that and say complementarian is not, uh, complementarianism is not the problem. It's the way that it's being practiced is the problem. Because my wife ought to feel safer with me than any other person on the planet. I'm called to be a loving protector of my, my wife. If you're not familiar with complementarianism, uh, you can read John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book. Well, actually, you don't read it. It's more of a reference book, unless you want to go to sleep at night. Uh, it's a big tome. I, call it, I lovingly call it the blue book, and it's called, you can actually print it out now. It's a, on desiringgod.org. You get a free PDF of it and it's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And he defines manhood, they define manhood there 
as a man lovingly leads, lovingly provides for, and lovingly protects. Uh, my, I'm called to shepherd my family. Well, shepherds don't abuse sheep. Shepherds love their flock. I mean, that'd be stupid. Uh, your flock is your livelihood. So shepherds abusing their flock, that's, that's an oxymoron. That just doesn't even fit with biblical thinking. You, when you think of a shepherd, you think gentle. You think care. You think loving concern. Uh, my wife ought to be able, and if I start crying, you just have to be patient with me. But when I think of my wife, she ought to be able to lovingly put her head on my shoulder and just kind of melt into me because she knows I am the person that loves her more than any other person on the planet. Uh, the fact that a woman would feel threatened by her husband and not feel safe around her husband, uh, that is not biblical thinking. So I'm belaboring this point a little bit because you know we're being told, uh, I've been in ministry uh, 43, coming up on 43 years, and I've never seen complementarianism more under attack than it is right now. We're, any of us that believe in complementarianism, we're feeling a lot of pressure uh, right now. But complementarianism is not the problem. It's the way men, their hearts, and the, when, the way men are uh, dominating and misusing any authority they have from God. Uh, verbal abuse, I, I mean, I doubt if any of us in the room even question that, but I have Psalm 64.3 here because that's where David refers to that the words of others were like arrows in his soul. That sounds really painful. So can you be verbally abused? Absolutely. You'll, you'll see, uh, when I, especially when I get to the protocols, I'll just mention a little bit now. We train our counselors that you know, are some of these things being misused, some of these titles, like I am being emotionally abused. I'm being verbally abused. As a counselor, when I start hearing that, I trust what I'm hearing. So listen to my words carefully. I trust but verify. I want to believe what I'm hearing. I am being incredibly compassionate with the woman when she tell, tells me he abuses me verbally. I'm going to be, this, I'll, I'll just demonstrate for you. Here's my demeanor. A woman has just said to me, he abuses me verbally. I'm going to say, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you're having to endure that. Would you help me understand what you mean? And I want to unpack what that means because I hope we're all, I hope we're all at the place where we realize here that there are some women who can use this in ways uh, to, I, I'm tired of this marriage. I want to get out of the, the marriage. And uh, what I just said was an extremely controversial statement. So I'm hoping that we're all at the place where we realize that there are some women that can use this in inappropriate ways, but that doesn't mean that I don't take what they're saying seriously. I take every woman seriously, just like I take every time the word suicide is mentioned, I take it absolutely seriously. We train our counselors, take the woman seriously. You are to be a very compassionate counselor, but we need to get more data. When she says she's being emotionally abused, what does she mean that she's being emotionally uh, abused or she's being verbally abused? And if you want to talk about that when we get to the question and answer time, feel free. And I'll run out the other door when, when, <laughs> when those topics come up. Uh, 
what are some ways that abuse comes out? I've seen all of these in the last years. <clears throat> one that I don't have on here is uh, depriving people of sleep. That would be one that you ought to add to your notes. So controlling money, blocking doorways. Uh, one case that I'm thinking of right now, unfortunately, it was a pastor. And uh, he, was, he was a very controlling man. And eventually, I had to tell him, you're not qualified for ministry. Uh, you need to resign your church. Um, he was keeping his wife up at nights and using the Bible. Like he, She would be begging him, please let me sleep. I am so exhausted. And he's saying, no, the Bible says you don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And we got to deal with this right now. And she would try to get out of the bedroom and he would stand there in the doorway and block the doorway. No, no, no. The Lord doesn't want you to run from your problems. You got to, got to face this right now. And it was really difficult to help him see where is that coming from? Like, I can't imagine trapping my wife in the bedroom to try to force her to have a conversation. I get in a lot of trouble, by the way. Um, so blocking doorways, obviously hitting. She had bruises. Uh, he pushed her out of bed before the pastor I was talking about. Verbal intimidation, degrading verbally, degrading acts sexually, uh, spousal rape, hidden cameras. He did that. He had hidden cameras around the house. Uh, stalking, uh, that's been a big issue with Julie. Let me tell you a funny part of the story with Julie. And it was a gotcha moment for the guy that I say is like the Taliban. He was tracking her, and we could not figure out how he was tracking her. She had left behind her uh, iPad. She left behind her computer when she fled the house. She got a new phone, a cheap phone. And, but he was tracking her vehicle. She was working at a Panera Bread one day because she works online. And so she just thought, I'll go to a Panera Bread that he, he won't know where I am. And the guy showed up. And she called us and said, I don't know how he found me, but he just walked into the Panera. So we had her car taken to the dealership, and they could not find the tracking device on the vehicle. But he was tracking her some way. So you know what we did? <laughs> I love this. Um, we have a man in our church who owns a Toyota dealership. His name's Mark. So I called Mark, and I said, Mark, we got a woman in our church that's in a very difficult situation. Would you take her vehicle as a trade-in? And he said, I'd love to help. And he said, we got we to gotta check the title. And, you know, in the sovereignty of God and God's beautiful providence, it did not say Mr. and Mrs. in their names. It said Mr. or Mrs. on the title of the vehicle. And so she traded that vehicle in. And she was already out of the house, but she traded that vehicle in. And just, I'm giving you a little bit of a taste of how the body of Christ has ministered to her. She drove the, her car payment. He wasn't making any of the payments. It's just she was driving a vehicle he wanted her to drive. And it was this big SUV type black vehicle with black windows, you know, like a mafia vehicle. And she didn't want to drive that. It was $700 a month for the payment. She drove off the parking lot. She drove traded that in, drove off the parking lot in a brand new Camry. She said, as she pulled, she was actually in our house. Our house was a safe house for her at that time. And she pulled into our driveway and she goes, I didn't realize that he gave me a brand new car. And she reduced her payments down to $200 a month. 
uh, that was the body of Christ working. The husband was livid, but uh, there was absolutely nothing uh, that he, he could do about it. So tracking vehicles, tracking in general, manipulating, all those things we've experienced uh, coming from a controlling heart. The next two things are about specialized terminology. I think you get that. We've heard them enough in our culture, so I'm not even going to spend time on them. Gaslighting and male privilege, uh, those are terms that get used. Now let's talk about the responsibility of the local church. <clears throat> this is just like complementarianism. This is another highly controversial area because we would be told, you better leave this to the specialists. And now let me make a, give a caveat here that if you've not dealt with these things, you better learn. I mean, don't, you just don't go into this nonchalant in dealing with domestic abuse cases. If you're a pastor who's never dealt with this, you do have a lot to learn, and you, you need to learn how, how to deal with these cases. But that doesn't mean that these are members of the flock that you should neglect. Uh, we're called to shepherd all kinds of issues in our, in our church, not just the easy ones. Uh, we've put our counseling team through a lot of domestic violence training just because of what was, has been going on in, in our church. We're a church of, I don't know, about four or 5,000, so we have more than our share of, of these type of cases. And so we've had to take it seriously. <clears throat> so we're called to shepherd the flock. We're called to confront sin. I've had face-to-face -face meetings with men to call them to repentance, especially the, the Taliban, and uh, just calling him to repentance and trying to help him see. You'll see a picture of Julie and her girls in the next presentation but helping him see, do you realize what you're doing to your girls? Do you understand the, the atmosphere you're building in your home and you have four girls, do you understand what you're doing to them and their prospects for marriage? If you don't repent, their prospects for marriage look horrible of what's gonna be, they may not even want to get married. Uh, so they're gonna end up living I mean, humans are relational, and we have affections, so they're going to say, well, I saw my parents' marriage, and it was horrible. I don't want marriage, so I'm just going to live with the guy, and we're not going to make a commitment. And you wonder, why has cohabitation risen so dramatically in our culture? It's because of models like this, of children not seeing models of good, healthy uh, marriages. I wrote a book called Marry Wisely, Marry Well because I'm so burdened about this for young people about how do you make a wise choice of a spouse and I, I address cohabitation in it and as part of my research, I used to do, for 14 years I did ministry near Virginia Tech campus so I would speak at Campus Crusade pretty regularly and I did a survey of about 700 Campus Crusade students as I was writing the book and I asked them what their concerns were about marriage, and one of them was so articulate. Uh, one young man said, one sees so few good or happy marriages that you must question it as a way of life. And I thought, wow, that captures exactly what's going on in our culture right now. So the, the future for the four girls is not bright unless the husband repents. And so I was calling him to repentance for the sake of his girls. Um, 
church discipline. He's now under church discipline. I could tell you a lot of gnarly stories about church discipline in the last seven years. Uh, our church is 100, about 100 and almost 190 years old, has been faithful to the gospel for 190 years in Jacksonville, Florida, which is almost unheard of <laughs> to have a church faithful to the gospel for 190 years. But our church never practiced church discipline uh, until Heath and I got there seven years ago. And we instituted a, a whole process of church discipline at First Baptist Church. And this man is now under church discipline, which was a uh, really difficult process to go through with him. And then what is our role as shepherds determining true repentance? How would we know if this man has really repented? And there's a lot of information in Scripture about how you tell what is true repentance. I'm going to finish with some initial protocols, and we'll talk about these more in the second session after lunch. Let me run through some of these, and if I don't get through them all, we'll just finish it after lunch. I've hinted at some of them. <clears throat> So reporting abuse, here's how we train our counselors. It's crucial that consent to report be obtained from the abused party before reporting since it's considered unethical to report, report abuse in the state of Florida. Please check Michigan laws. That may just be Florida. If there is imminent danger, uh, you call 911. When it says see page 16, that's referring to our counseling policy and procedure manual. Uh, we have developed a whole policy and procedure manual for our counseling ministry at First Baptist Church. And we have uh, all kinds of tools in there for our counselors to use. Uh, 911 should be called even without informed consent. Keeping the above in mind, we lean toward reporting and urging the abused parties to report. We have developed a, a protocol at our church. If you don't know what to do, you use a council of three. Here's what a council of three is. So we try to train all of our counselors. We are a team. You don't have to make these decisions on your own. So call the pastor of counseling. Call the pastor over your area of ministry. Call another biblical counselor, and let's confer together. Scripture says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So if there's uncertainty about how to proceed with reporting abuse, please convene a council of three two of which must be ministry staff members to consult with one another to make a decision. Often, and here's where I want to clarify why, and I'll finish with this, and then we'll just finish the rest after lunch. Often domestic abuse initially will present itself as marriage counseling. And then as you're doing the marriage counseling, you keep hearing about anger or you find out somebody's really struggling with anger. So we've trained our counselors, listen for red flags. Anger is a red flag issue. If I'm doing marriage counseling and I start hearing the word anger, hearing stories about anger, I'm gonna slow down and I may even separate the couple so I can do more data gathering to find out what's going on. Now, and if I find out, if I start to think this is a domestic abuse case. This stopped being marriage counseling. We're not doing marriage counseling anymore. So let me give you an illustration of why this is not marriage counseling. Um, as you know, Florida deals with hurricanes. And 
So imagine you're trying to do a home improvement project and you want to paint the outside of your house. So every marriage has home improvement products, uh, projects, right? So every marriage, we, have, we always have things we can be working on in our, our marriage. I've been married almost 43 years, and Rose and I always have things we can be working on because we're both still growing in our sanctification. So there's always home improvement projects. Well, imagine you're trying to paint the house, but a hurricane is there. And there's this raging storm going on outside. I can't get to the painting because there's a raging storm that is stopping me from doing the home improvement projects. Another illustration would be um, substance abuse. Someone's a substance abuser and they're hooked on drugs. Well, are there marriage issues? Of course there's marriage issues, but you can't deal with the marriage issues until you help this guy get off the drugs. We gotta deal with the substance abuse issue so then we can focus now we can get back to the marriage issues once you've repented, and that's not such a life-dominating issue. So we train our counselors, if it's a domestic abuse issue, this ceases to be marriage counseling. It now needs to become individual counseling, and we've got to focus on his life-dominating problem that is just dominating the whole marriage. 